red gliding baseball rag. See the pitcher throw and strike him out. You got him going. Oh, oh, that gliding baseball drag. Don't you be a quitter. Show him you're a heavy hitter. Some classy curve the pitcher twirling. Go on, kids, spin without a whirling. Hey, soak it out, soak it out. Make a home run, ball, strike. Safe hit, first base, make second. You're a bird, keep it going, sonny. Make me win a lot of money. Don't stop until you're touching third. You're a holy terror, center fielder made an error. Slide, slide, you made a good beginning, for you know that your team always makes a winning when you play ball and sing that baseball rag. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to the Friday, June 30th edition of Free Baseball, the podcast that goes into extra innings to bring you the best in observation, insight, and analysis of our national pastime. I'm your host, Robert Cadera. Last night, I sat in front of my TV and I watched in silence as the New York Mets dropped the third of four games in a home series against the light-hitting Milwaukee Brewers. The loss dropped the Mets' record for June to 7-18 and and put them nine games under 500 at the halfway mark in the 2023 season. At this rate, the team is on a pace to win 72 games and lose 90 I remind you that last year this same team won 101 games. If this pace keeps up, the Mets will end the season with the worst one-loss record by a team that won 100 or more games the previous season in the history of Major League Baseball. As you know from last week's show, the Mets not only have the highest payroll in the majors at $344 million, They have the highest team payroll in baseball history. How did this happen? What the heck is wrong with the Mets? We'll look at this sad state of affairs in the first segment of this week's show. As I watched the game, one of the Mets announcers made the point that starter Max Scherzer came into the game with a career one-loss record of 208 and 104. Only four other pitchers have won that many career games with as good or better a winning percentage. Hall of Famer Pedro Martinez, Hall of Famer Whitey Ford, Hall of Famer Lefty Grove, and a gentleman we will salute this week as our unsung hero, one Bob Carruthers, a 5-foot-7-inch, 138-pound righty, who went 218 and 99 for the St. Louis Browns and the Brooklyn Bridegrooms before the turn of the 20th century. Never heard of Bob Carruthers? Well, you have plenty of company, but wait until you hear what he accomplished in a nine-year career before he retired at the ripe old age of 28. After our unsung hero, we'll have the answer to last week's trivia question and a new one for you, an easier one from recent baseball history. So let's get on with the show. Jane, if you will.
So here we are. It's June 30th. The Mets have a record of 36 and 45. They are 17 and a half games behind the first place Atlanta Braves in the National League East. They are 10th in the wild card standings, nine games out of qualifying. And they have to leapfrog six other teams in order to make it to the postseason. Steve Cohen, owner, spoke to the media yesterday, and we'll have some comments on what he said toward the end of today's show. What the heck is going on here? We came into this season with justifiable expectations. Well, if you read the media, and I'm sure most of you do, there's all kinds of explanations. A disaster like this doesn't happen just for one reason. You can point to the pitching and the hitting being uncoordinated and irregular. When the Mets get good pitching, their hitters don't hit. When they score seven or more runs, their record is seven wins and six losses, which is ridiculous. You can point to injuries, but every team has them. You can point to individuals who are not performing to the level of expectations or who have dropped off from last year. This is an old team, and that, I think, is not unexpected. If you watch or read the media, listen to the radio, sports shows, everybody's got an explanation, but the fact is there's not one reason. Something this bad is a calamity, a coming together, a perfect storm, if you will, of a whole variety of problems. I'm not going to repeat what all the others are saying here. Instead, I'm going to take a historical and organizational look at the Mets and find out at the core what is wrong. The first thing I want to point out is that we are still suffering from the legacy of Brody Van Wagenen and Sandy Alderson's time at the helm of this organization. You might remember Van Wagenen was named the Mets' general manager. He was the darling of Jeff Wilpon, a player agent who had never, I repeat, never held an office within a sports organization before. He's the guy who made the trade for Edwin Diaz. And one of the things that happened in that trade is that he traded away Jared Kelenic, who was the Mets' first-round draft pick and one of the top outfield prospects in baseball. But he also, let us not forget, took on the contract of Robinson Cano, who, by the way, just happened to be one of his clients when he was a player agent. That saddled the Mets with $47.4 million, which they are still paying off this season. Edwin Diaz, of course, you can't fault him for being injured this year. That was a freak accident. But let's not forget that when Edwin came to the Mets, he was terrible. Look at his 2019 stats. When you see an ERA of over five for a supposed closer, you know you've got trouble. To his credit, Edwin bounced back. He was excellent in 2020. He was league average as a reliever in 2021. He was excellent last year, the best reliever in baseball. And of course, this year, the Mets are getting nothing from him. So that's two out of five years when they've had a really positive result. 
In addition to trading away Kellenic, let us not forget the trade of Pete Crow Armstrong, the Mets' subsequent number one pick and a prep outfielder, who they sent to the Chicago Cubs so that we could enjoy two months of Javi Baez swinging at pitches out of the strike zone. Don't look now, but Crow Armstrong is rated the number 15 prospect in baseball, a terrific gold glove caliber center fielder who gets on base and steals bases. So one of the problems we are paying for right now is that for several years, the Mets had an amateur as their general manager. The other problem is more serious than that and historical in its origins, and that is that of all the organizations in baseball, the Mets have historically been one of the worst at evaluating the talent that they already have in their minor league system and on their major league roster. This is a talent that uh, doesn't get talked about very much, but really it is always there when you look at the successful franchises. They know what they have in hand. They know what cards they're holding, so to speak. The Mets have always done a lousy job Most recently, I think, back in 2013, they had a fairly productive utility infielder on their roster who was up for salary arbitration for the first time. They didn't think he was worth it, and so the Mets non-tendered this young man. His name, of course, was Justin Turner. He's gone on to a decade of productivity and leadership first with the Los Angeles Dodgers and now with the Boston Red Sox. The Mets got nothing, nothing in return for Justin Turner. We, uh, dare I mention the name Nolan Ryan? In 1972, the Mets had Nolan Ryan. He was a 24-year-old fireballer on their pitching staff, along with Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman. The Mets had a hole at third base, so they let Ryan go in order to get Jim Fregosi, an overaged former shortstop from the uh, Angels. I believe they were called the California Angels at that time. We know the story. Fregosi gave the Mets one desultory season at the hot corner. Nolan Ryan went on to a Hall of Fame career. A few years later, the Mets traded away a young second baseman who had just given them two 20-home run seasons. They traded him to the Cleveland Indians for Carlos Baerga, an aging second baseman. And this young guy that they traded, of course, was Jeff Kent, whom many believe should also be in the Hall of Fame. The Mets don't forget, had a guy named Nelson Cruz in their minor league system, and they traded him before he even played a single game for the Mets. They got shortstop Jorge Valandia, and I'm sure you remember his 147 average with the Mets. They had a guy named Amos Otis. Remember Amos Otis, center fielder, speedster, guy could hit. They traded him in another attempt to fill the void at third base, and they got Joe Foy, who lasted about a year or two and then was gone. The Mets had another guy named Jose Bautista. In 2004, they acquired him in a trade, and hours later, they sent him, along with their top pitching prospect, lefty Scott Kazmer, 
in exchange for an injured right-hander named Chris Benson and the great Victor Zambrano. Bautista went on to hit 344 homers in a 15-year career. He was a six-time All-Star and four times finished in the top 10 in the Most Valuable Player Award. Mike Scott met fans shiver when they look at him. Mike Scott had a couple of decent years for the Mets, and they traded him for the renowned Danny Heap. Mike Scott went on to win a Cy Young Award. He finished second one year. He had a 20-win season and two seasons where he won 18 for the Astros. He led the National League in strikeouts, earned run average, shutouts, innings pitched, and he almost eliminated the Mets in 1986, lest we forget. This goes all the way back to the beginning, not evaluating properly the talent that the Mets had. In 1962, the first season of the Mets' existence, they had a pretty fair center fielder in the minor leagues. His name was Paul Blair, and the Baltimore Orioles got Paul Blair by drafting him in the minor league draft from the New York Mets. And of course, Blair went on to be a pillar of defensive skill for successful Baltimore Oriole teams in the late 60s, early 70s. He won eight gold gloves. In 1973, the Mets traded Kenny Singleton from Mount Vernon. He was 24 years old. Now, they got Rusty Staub in return, all right? But they also traded Tim Foley and Mike Jorgensen along with Kenny Singleton. And as well as Staub did with the Mets, Kenny Singleton retired number four on the list of highest OPS of all-time switch hitters behind Mantle, Chipper Jones, and Reggie Smith. After the 1986 and 87 seasons, the Mets got rid of Kevin Mitchell. They thought he was a bad influence on the team. He went on to earn an MVP award for the Giants. These two problems go hand in hand. Poor talent evaluation within your organization leads you to make bad trades. And the Mets have traded away so much young talent, it's really not surprising that they've always seemed to have this problem of filling out their roster. The Mets lost their closer this year. But let's not forget they also traded away young closers like Rick Aguilera and Randy Myers and Jeff Reardon in their history. More recently, in fact just last year, the Mets wanted to boost the roster at DH, right-handed DH. They needed some power. So they traded J.D. Davis, who three years earlier had hit 22 home runs for the Mets, and three pitching prospects for Darren Ruff, who couldn't hit the side of a barn for the Mets last year. This year, don't look now, but J.D. Davis is coming into town this weekend with the San Francisco Giants, and he leads the Giants in RBIs. He's hitting a solid 286, and his numbers are better than anybody's in the Mets lineup. It's going to take a while to get the taste of that deal out of our mouths. So when you look at that and the trading of Kellenick and the trading of Pete Crow Armstrong, you see that the inability to appreciate, identify, and value the talent of players the Mets already have in their organization has led them to make some pretty bad trades. 
let's not forget in this age of thin bullpens that the Mets traded Colin Holderman for the much maligned, rightfully so, Daniel Vogelbach. Let's look at starting pitching. In the last couple of years, the Mets have let Wheeler, Walker, Stroman, and Bassett go in free agency. They got little or nothing in return. We can add Syndergaard to that list as well. And they signed instead Carrasco and Quintana, who has yet to appear in a game. Carrasco they took as part of the Lindor deal. He was a salary dump by the Indians. Billy Epler has to assume his share of the blame. First of all, he had no track record of success when he was the GM of the Los Angeles Angels, another big market team whose owner has big and deep pockets. His record there was 332 and 376. When he left to join the Mets, year and a half, almost two years ago now, the Angels had a minor league system that was ranked 30th, last in baseball, by Baseball America. So not only did Epler not bring success on the major league level, he presided over the Angels' minor league system, which was ranked the worst in baseball. So we're sitting here waiting for relief pitchers. Edwin Uceta, Eleazar Hernandez, Sam Coonrod. Who the heck are these guys? We've already got Jeff Brigham, Grant Hartwig, Dominic Leone, T.J. McFarlane, somebody named Natoli, none of these have any record of success in Major League Baseball. What are they doing on the Mets' 40-man roster? That was a conscious decision by Billy Epler, who valued pitchers who had options remaining, and because that was factored in more heavily than whether or not the guys were talented. So Epler did that ass backwards, taking flexibility over ability. What does it say that you'd rather have a a relief pitcher who could be sent back to the minors rather than a relief pitcher you know can get major league hitters out? Epler also has put together a team that's old. At the start of the season, the oldest team in Major League Baseball. And we know, as we all age, that injuries affect us faster when we're older, and they take longer to heal. And also, in the baseball salary structure, old players are more expensive. There is no outfielder on the Mets who is under 30 years old, and only one who's under 34 years old. The starting rotation is led by people who are 40, 38, and 36 years old. The top three in the bullpen are 38, 37, and 34 years old. The Mets are old, and guys, they're not getting any younger next year. The lack of hunger is another thing I have noticed. It's kind of an insidious factor. I don't know if it's payroll-related, but where the hell is the fight in these guys? Where's the Bud Harrelson or the Ray Knight out on that field? Who is the leader on the field? Lindor? Alonzo? I don't see it. And we've got a manager in Showalter who I think needs to kick some ass. 
This is his last Major League managerial chance, and if he wants to win a championship, he's got to instill a little bit more fire and maybe even a little fear in these guys. All right, so yesterday, Uncle Stevie spoke to the media, and I thought he did a fairly good assessment of where the team is. Are they going to be sellers at the deadline? Well, he held open that possibility. And he also said, and I think this is telling, is that if the players don't improve, he's not going to add at the trade deadline. So I would look for Canna and Pham and Rayleigh and Narvaez maybe to be moved. I don't expect much in return. Maybe a B-level prospect, a C-level prospect. I think they might just drop Carrasco or drop Vogelbach. They're not going to get anything for either of them. I would hold on to Robertson unless you can get something really substantial for him. I don't think Scherzer's going anywhere. Uh, I don't think that Alonzo is going anywhere. You keep Alonzo and build around him. You sign him long term. Scherzer's too old. Verlander is too old. They're making $43 million a year. Nobody is going to take that kind of contract on unless Cohen decides he's going to pay $35 million of it. And for what? So this year, I think there's a 90 to 95 percent chance of no postseason for the New York Mets. That's a bitter reality. I think we all have to face that. Maybe they play Mauricio at second base, Beatty at third, Alvarez at catcher. They they bring back Vientos. They have no minor league pitching that's going to help them in the near future. But at least find out what those young players have and what they might contribute in the future. Make a better evaluation of the talent that we currently have on the roster and in the minor league system. I think Cohen will be sitting still for that. I think he has the patience to see that through. And I think Met fans were going to have to go through another period in the desert before we reach the promised land. That fanfare means it's time for the Unsung Hero segment of Free Baseball, and it's nice to be able to celebrate achievement rather than underachievement for a while. Today's hero is a guy named Bob Carruthers. You've probably never heard of him. He pitched long ago, entering the big leagues in 1884 as a 20-year-old. His career was pretty much over 10 years later. But in that short period of time, he was exceptional. He won 40 games twice with records of 40 and 13 in 1885 and an ERA of 2.07. And then five years later in 1889, he won 40 games again, a 40 and 11 record, leading the league with a 784 winning percentage. All told, He won 40 games twice, 30 games once, 29 games twice, and then I guess in what you'd call an off year, he won 23 and 11 for the bridegrooms in 1890, and the next year 18 and 14 with the same team. If you don't think that's enough, 28, uh, 218 wins and 99 losses, consider this. First, his average season was a 23-10 and 10 year, 
with a 2.83 ERA. Not bad. But also, good old Bob Carruthers, all 5 foot 7 inch, 138 pounds of him, also played the outfield when he wasn't pitching. In 1886, he hit 334 and had a league leading on base percentage of 448. Not to be outdone the following year when he was 23 years old, in 1887, he led the St. Louis Browns with a 357 batting average and a 463 on base. He retired with a 282 average and a 391 on base percentage. The only thing he didn't do was hit for power. Bob Carruthers, hats off to you in an age when so many high-priced athletes are underachieving. It's nice to tip our hat to somebody who really achieved, and considering his sickly childhood and his small stature, I think it's fair to say Bob Carruthers, an unsung hero and a great overachiever. It's trivia time now at Free Baseball. Last week's trivia question dealt with a young boy who played shortstop for the Dodgers at age 16 in 1944, but whose career was all washed up before he was 25 years old. He had the nickname Buckshot, but that was not a compliment. The Buckshot meant that he was a tough hitter, but also didn't know where the ball was going once it left his hand. Buckshot Brown. Buckshot Tommy Brown. Look him up. One-time Dodger hopeful, never quite made it. He's the answer to last week's trivia question. Now, we've got the All-Star Game coming up in about 10 days or so. So this time, we're going to give you a modern trivia question, and it's a simple one. Can you name the two current active Major League players who have made the most All-Star appearances in their career? One clue, one of these guys will be starting in Seattle and the other will not and probably won't be on the team unless he's added as a honorary member. All right, the two Major League Baseball players currently active who have the most all-star game appearances. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be back next Friday with yet another episode of Free Baseball I'm your host, Robert Cadera. Thanks for stopping by. The Free Baseball Podcast is brought to you by Black Range Publishing, producers of the Gabe McKenna Mystery Series and the Black Range Pub Podcast. You can find us at www.blackrangepublishing.com. Free Baseball can also be found at the following podcast platforms. Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Audible. Come back and enjoy free baseball every Friday. I'm your host, Robert Cadera. Thanks for stopping by. See you next week. (laughs) 